Hey guys, and welcome back to the Brown Girl White Coat Podcast. My name is Sai, like a sigh of relief, and I'm so excited to be joining you guys today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if I do say so myself, we have an excellent one in store for you guys. So this week I sat down with Dr. Owalabi, who is a pediatrician that I met on one of my rotations in pediatrics at a county hospital here in Houston, Texas. And I thought she was just so amazing and she was one of you know my favorite attendings to work with. So I asked her to be on the podcast. A little bit about her. So she is a working pediatrician. She works both on the hospitalist medicine side as well as in the newborn unit, which is where I got the chance to work with her. So a little bit about her. She received her BA from Duke University in public policy. She went on to receive her MD from UT Southwestern and then completed residency in pediatrics at UNC Chapel Hill. And she is just so cool. So we talked a little bit about advocacy work and a medical student's role in advocacy work. And she has kind of a different perspective on that. So you'll get to hear more about that as well as how COVID-19 is affecting families in the hospital, as well as just getting a little bit more personal about her life and what she does outside of medicine. So it's really exciting to see, you know, a working attending, what is her lifestyle like? That's always something that I look for and that I want to kind of hear more about before making specialty decisions myself. So I think this will be a really fun episode. And before we get into it, I'm so excited to announce that we have a sponsor for this podcast episode. So you'll be hearing two ads during this episode and hopefully it'll be something you guys are really interested in. So before we get into our first little ad, make sure you go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well as follow us on Spotify to know whenever we upload a new episode. So, and we are doing every week now, so you can stay in touch with us on our podcast Instagram as well. If you have any questions or any suggestions or anyone you'd love to for us to interview or talk to on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into this quick ad and then right into the podcast. So I wanted to take a quick second to talk about this week's sponsor, Pixarize. We are so excited to be working with them again this year. Pixarize is a resource that I used when studying for regular class exams my first two years of med school, as well as the CBSC or the practice step one exam that the school administers. And now that I'm going into step one dedicated time, I'm definitely going to be relying on Pixarize's videos for memory hooks and visual memory tricks that I can count on my brain actually remembering when the test actually comes around. So if you guys don't know what Pixarize is, it is basically visual hooks or these cute little pictures that help you remember everything about a specific topic. So they have some amazing biochem mnemonics and biochem is my toughest topic. I can never remember all of these enzymes, but for example, for let's say pyruvate dehydrogenase, they have a pyrite and it really helps me remember the entire picture and remember what each enzyme does. So this is something I'm going to rely on for step one. And I think it's a great resource for any of y'all that might be looking for a better way to memorize. You can use our code BGWC for Brown Girl White Coat 15 for 15% off any of the packages on their website. So check it out and let me know if you guys like it. Right. Hey guys, today we have Dr. Owalabi, a pediatrician in Houston, Texas on the show. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Of course, no problem. I know this time is kind of crazy and I really appreciate you taking out the time during the whole COVID crisis to talk to everyone today. Also, it's kind of weird seeing you without a mask because I feel like at the hospital, I never got to see everybody's faces. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so let's jump right into the segments. So the first one we do is called setting the record straight. This is where I'll give you three different little facts or statements, and you'll tell me if you think they're true or false in your opinion and tell us why. The first one, are you ready? <laughs> I, I'm ready. <laughs> okay, perfect. So the first one is pediatrics is more about addressing parent concerns than your kid patient. False. Okay. And I would say that pediatrics in itself, I think that's what makes it so unique um, because you are balancing those two. We very much try to put it at whatever level the child is to understand what's going on, in addition to provide the information and everything the parents want to hear too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so number two is physicians should be politically engaged. True. False. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think, I think it's a term, I think the, it should be up to the physician, right? So I think physicians have different strengths from that standpoint or different interests. So depending on where that interest lies, maybe they'll be more passionate about it. So in the setting of pediatrics, for me, while I might not be the biggest, most outspoken person um, just in regards to politics, but I do care about like child advocacy or what are we doing in these times for those who aren't meeting have food insecurities, but not necessarily everyone can, you know, participate in that. So leave it up to the provider. <laughs> Absolutely. So advocacy for patients in that sense is the most important thing you would say. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the last one is I felt a calling to the field of pediatrics. True. And I think everyone who uh, is, of course, fortunate enough to go through medicine um, from that standpoint will find something that really resonates with them. Um, and I, it's weird, but like, and I'll explain this later, but I've always kind of just gravitated towards kids. So I think you're either going to be, I really like kids, I really like adults, or I kind of like a combination of the two, but you'll be able to kind of pick out your calling. Right. And then just a follow-up question to that, was it kind of like one moment where you realized, or did you even know before going into medical school that you were interested in treating children? I knew before going into medical school, but I didn't, I went into medical school open. And I think what you'll just realize is kind of the day-to-day -day grind. I don't think there was, of course, there's probably specific moments where like, oh, that was amazing. But it's just like, what did I enjoy doing every day that I didn't mind? As opposed to what did I wake up with like, or just like, I got to get through this rotation and kind of really try to see that and kind of speak to that in yourself, like pay attention to those signals. Yeah, of course. So we're going to talk more about that later for sure. So I just want to get into the meat of this podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of drove you to medicine in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a Houstonian. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Um, I am the firstborn of three girls and my parents immigrated from Nigeria. So I'm a first generation Nigerian American. Um, and so from that standpoint, I think as with any immigrant population, um, the motto is like work hard. Um, oh, and yeah. luckily, um, I had very, my parents are great from that standpoint. They were very mindful in regards to work hard, but they wanted you to do what you were most interested in. So I was never pressured to go into kind of what we joke about is medicine, engineer, lawyer, are your three options as a career. Um, oh, yeah. I was never um, pressured that way, but gradually, kind of from a young age, I just always liked going for my checkups. 
Mm-hmm. I always like going to my pediatrician for my checkups. And from that standpoint, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I, I want to be a doctor. So um, my career in medicine and kind of from that standpoint was pretty typical, I'd say. Um, I kind of did, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. I actually attended DeBakey High School for the first two years. So that's mm-hmm. um, for those not familiar with the Houston area is a magnet school um, in the Houston Independent School District that caters to those in health professions. So I did my first two years there and then I transferred back out um, to Hightower High School, which is out um, in Fort Bend County and also has kind of like a health professions program and finished my the rest of my high school career there. Um, after high school, I went to Duke. So go Blue Devils. Um, yeah. I was undecided and I think for those that are still in the pre-med track and haven't decided on a major, do what interests you. So I ended up doing public policy as um, my major with a concentration in health policy. I thought I was going to get my MD and my MPH and like change the world. So that was my concentration at Duke. And then after finishing college, I actually took a year off to apply to medical school and then also work. So I worked in DC at a nonprofit agency, um, National Women's Health Network, which was kind of in line with health policy. Um, It focused on women policy and women's rights, um, in addition to kind of exploring some of the medical background. So we focused on maybe like endometriosis, birth control, pregnancy. So had that combination, but then realized in my kind of semester, in DC that I hated politics. (laughs) (laughs) While I do enjoy the dialogue, it's a lot of work for policy, which I don't think I knew, you know, um, before you actually get um, that policy. Um, And I'm very thankful for those that do it, but it's not, it's not easy. And it wasn't something that I saw that I could do 50% of the time and then practice medicine 50% of the time. Um, So for that decision, I decided I was just going to do my MD. I then went to UT Southwestern, which is based in Dallas, Texas, for the four years of medical school. And for those still in the process, um, the cheapest is always the best. I completely (laughs) Um, agree. (laughs) If you are fortunate enough to live in Texas, any one of our med schools would be appropriate (laughs) from that standpoint. Um, But yeah, I did spend four years in Dallas. And then after Dallas, uh, went to UNC in Chapel Hill for my pediatrics residency. And so that was three years, loved it up there. And so then returned back to Baylor College of Medicine where I've been practicing as a pediatric hospitalist um, now for the past three years. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I love that story. And definitely politics is not for everybody. It's also extremely time consuming. And especially now when there's a million things that we wanna change. At least my my generation right now is very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed when it comes to to politics and being active in politics. And I think we need that. Like I I I admire and I respect those people wholeheartedly, but like you said, it, it's a lot of effort. And there's a lot of things we need change and it just can't it can't be something passive that I felt I was naive that oh, I could do this too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that brings up the dichotomy of, you know, physicians are so blessed to have the knowledge it takes to, you know, maybe construct a amazing healthcare plan, or they have that like insider um, knowledge about what patients need. But then on the other end, they have such little time with 
you know, with what they can choose to either do politics or they can, you know, choose to spend time with their families or they can, you know, such little, little free time. (laughs) And I mean, this might be a tangent, but you know, that fragment, I think we're, we're seeing that fragment, right? We're seeing that dichotomy when we have like business aspects minded coming to manage the healthcare system and doctors kind of just focusing on the medicine process and the two not really speaking in regards to, okay, is this actually going to be productive for a healthcare system? And of course we, we do, we just need more. We need more of that like balance of health physicians and kind of that policy mind, which hopefully, hopefully in years to come, yeah, <laughs> it will work its way out. Yeah, absolutely. So did you always know that you wanted to come back to Houston after your um, years of education or? Um, I think so. I've gone a little bit of everywhere from that standpoint. I think most of like my training has been on the East Coast. Um, I think Houston will always stare near, near and dear to me because my family's here. So my sisters, my parents, a lot of my extended relatives too are based in Houston. But I was not limited. For me, I'm always like, okay, what's the next adventure? <laughs> so yeah. I, I casted my net broadly, but I think when you weigh any type of move or anything like that, there's always going to be benefits and then, you know, risks from that standpoint. And the benefits from that standpoint were just so, there were just so many here from that standpoint, from not just only my family, but like our medical center is one of the it's top. Beautiful. That's beautiful. And there's just a lot of learning that goes along here passively and actively from that standpoint. And so I thought that I would be around a community. And I think that's the most importantly, would you be able to thrive in that community? Do you find support there too as well? Yeah. And then a follow-up question to that. Did you always know that you wanted to do academic medicine, that you wanted to be a, a you know, lifelong teacher type of role? No, not, a, it's not, <laughs> not at all. Because when I, when I graduated pediatrics, I was like, I'm going to work in the community. I don't want to work with another medical, like, not that I don't love my <laughs> my residents, but I think I was at a time or a period where I was like, okay, I got to I got to figure out how to be an attending. So I think that there is enough balance because Texas Children's, Baylor College of Residence, we have community sites. Um, But I have found kind of in my three years here that I do enjoy working with the students. I do enjoy like asking them like, and not even from a malicious attempt or, oh, you have to be interested in pediatrics. Like, what are you interested in? What do you like? How can we cater that? So that your experience and the education you're getting is relevant towards, you know, what you ultimately want to do. Um, As a pediatrician, like, of course, my job is always going to be able to teach you guys that pediatric aspect. Um, But I do think it does take not only special patients, but able to, you know, relate to students and just remember that time period. And I think with my residents, with my medical students, the fact that I get to see you guys often allows me to kind of remember my time in your shoes as well. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Can we talk more about your pediatrics residency and how that kind of worked out, how you kind of operated as a resident? Is it as rough as everyone says? Are the rumors true? Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> like I said, I went to UNC, which is in Chapel Hill, um, for my residency program, and it was an amazing program. I think oftentimes, so just with the whole application process, there's going to be different sizes, different things location-wise that attract you to a specific program. Um, I would say ultimately you are going to be in the hospital for a very long, <laughs> long hours. You are going to be around the people in your program for very long hours. And even when you're outside the hospital, usually those are the people you're hanging around. And UNC was just such a beautiful program. I thought the people that I worked with were amazing colleagues. Um, these were people that were my friends that I still keep in touch with today. Um, residency, um, I would say yes. Most most of the things you hear about residency, <laughs> you are drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, it's just um, the amount of knowledge, just from systems to diagnostics to pathology to just how a certain hospital works um, from that standpoint. And it's constantly changing as you're going from rotation to rotation. So. I think the motto more so is just to embrace the change and, and, you know, get on, let's see how much I can handle day to day. I think when I started residency, I was very much, which I think a lot of us are, we have that personality of, I have to be perfect, right? Or I have to get this on the first try. Mm -hmm. residency that's not especially your intern year that's just not going to happen um you can go through a whole 12 hour shift <laughs> and there'll still be things that you need to check off or things you just don't understand that you'll come back to tomorrow and that's i think what people need to remember don't don't get defeated like don't say like oh i didn't get it this time okay that was your first time so what can you take away from that so that the second time you do it you kind of improve on that um, not, you know, like it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> right. right. Uh, make sure that um, you have kind of, and have built that stamina, I think is an important thing to realize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we all know that every specialty has its pros and cons. Um, for example, you could absolutely love surgery and then end up going a different route because you value and prioritize other things more. So in that same aspect, what are some of the quote unquote cons of pediatrics that you're like, hmm, I could maybe do without this in, in the field. <laughs> the cons and benefits interwined. I will say a con is that you have two patients. So you have your patient, which is the pediatric patient, right? The age could be from newborn to 23, 24. And then you have a parent and the dichotomy of that, um, while you think would be in synchronous, so isn't always the case. It could actually be more of a tension building kind of fight. So while you might be trying to explain the diagnosis on one hand to the child who seems, you know, relatively to understand um, the disease, understands the treatment, you then have to explain that to the parent who at times could also be defiant against the treatment. Um, you might have something that could ultimately cure this child, right? Like could make this easier, but the parent might not want that. And the parent as the guardian for the child has, you know, has that right. So oftentimes like that legal battle that might ensue or that discussion that might need to be teased out um, is 
not fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes you're just like, well, my patient, like it's good for my patient. My patient wants it. Let's do it. Right. And that's not always the case. In addition to that, um, pediatrics is a vulnerable population, right? These are patients that we expect to have caretakers. We expect them to have an adult that can voice kind of what's appropriate in regards to management. And we believe that these adults are making good decisions. And once again, that's not always the case. So things like child abuse um, really are always hard cases to digest because here you have an innocent child who did nothing wrong um, and it's an unfortunate situation. And oftentimes trying to balance and show that love, you know, in the hospital doesn't always transpire or they're not always open for that, right? And then you have no way of predicting where that child is going to go next. So as much as you try to provide a safe haven and ultimately what we do in regards to our voice and working with, you know, child abuse specialists is that we want to put them in safe places, but that doesn't always happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I mean, that's why it's so critical that you are in pediatrics and that you're able to kind of intervene or have some sort of role in that situation. I think that in lines with like the benefits, like kids are resilient. Like Mm -hmm. I have seen very, very sick kids in the PICU just from training and they make a comeback a hundred percent and you would have never known that they were you know in the PICU. Um, Kids oftentimes aren't responsible for their illnesses as well like it's hard in medicine because while we do and we practice preventative care a lot of it is the choices that we have made after years and years um, of being Mm. alive right whether that's diet whether that's lack of exercise whether that's you know family genetics hereditary on top of lifestyle choices oftentimes we're playing catch up but with kids i feel like for the most part they aren't responsible for their illnesses um usually it's genetics um or it's just environment from that standpoint and with the appropriate preventative care or with the appropriate treatment oftentimes we can reverse the damage you know and they can have a full life you know without any health complications yeah Yeah, absolutely. How often has that happened to where there's, um, where you as a pediatrician have to get involved because maybe the parent doesn't pick something that is in the best interest of the child? Or how often do you have to like contact ethics or something related to that where you have a difficult situation? Well, I mean, I think as a hospitalist, so I think it also, it it depends on how, where and how you practice too, right? So um, depending on where you practice will determine kind of what you're seeing with your population. So I imagine um, if you are a pediatrician who's outpatient and is working with like our high risk, low income populations, that might be something that you have to um, deal with a lot. In the hospital setting, everyone's, you know, from different socioeconomic backgrounds and they come to the hospital for different reasons. Oftentimes, I won't say that it's, I mean, I have a case, they come in waves, I would say. I definitely had like a week where I was dealing with social, like social services on three of my patients. Um, But it just varies from that standpoint. 
Um, I think in the hospital, what you want to prevent, and that's as a pedi pediatricians, you know, we have our frontliners who see our kids on a more frequent basis would, would be their pediatrician. Um, but what you want to prevent is that serious case that comes in that's mm -hmm. had a lot of traumatic um, injuries and is now having to deal with a lot of subspecialties in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So it would, I say it varies, but like I said, the hospital for myself, I find to be an ideal place to practice is because I have the ancillary staff and the support if needed. Right. So there are social ser services from that standpoint, we have child life, um, mm -hmm. who just helps you know with activities and things and can relate. There's child psychology who can come to their rooms and talk to the patient themselves. And then of course the other specialties too in child abuse team. Right. And the, the hospital that I was um, able to work with your team at had an extremely diverse patient population. I think my, my week there, I maybe only had one English speaking patient. Um, so what are some of your tips when it comes to that, to, when it comes to treating a diverse patient population or maybe non-English speakers? Exactly. Yes. And so, um, are so you were able to work with me in our county hospital mm -hmm. and so I feel unfortunately at your county hospital your volume tends to be higher and mm -hmm. so your time also tends to be shorter and then you have a language barrier the one thing that I constantly kind of implore and kind of demand just from my residents and training to is to just take the adequate time so make sure that you are using an interpreter um, make sure that you are truly taking the time to see if there's any concerns, any questions, and that the patient is given the opportunity to ask. Because there are times that people, as physicians, and I'm talking to all of us, we've missed stuff just because there is that language barrier or something didn't, or someone was afraid to speak up just because they knew that it would, it requires a lot to get kind of appropriate attention. So just making sure that you as much as possible, treat your patient the same way that you would treat any other patient. Um, so I oftentimes will advocate from that standpoint for an interpreter. An in-person interpreter is always better if you can. But in this day and age, I know we use a lot of phones and stuff like that. It's just easier or even kind of the video interpreters. I'd say that that's mm -hmm. a from there too as well and then trying to figure out more about the culture so if you know that you're going to practice in your county hospital that has a high Hispanic or high Asian population and they're coming from a certain country find out like kind of the caveats about that so kind of from a newborn standpoint there were things that were done in certain cultures that I didn't know about um, before kind of working at our county hospital. And I was like, well, okay, we don't necessarily do this from the American standpoint. Is it safe? When should I be concerned? Or why do they do that from that standpoint? So kind of trying to create a dialogue and understand different cultures and perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that you said it just takes, you know, the adequate amount of time to treat and help these patients. Um, when I was on, on service with you, I had um, a patient that was Nepali and I just found out that, you know, we speak kind of similar languages. So just finding out how to say hello in that language immediately just broke the wall down. It can be as, as little as just taking like 30 seconds to find out how to say hello in that language. Very but, much. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, and I think that's something that as providers, we should pay attention to, which I'm very, like, I sense that, like, it's easier for me to carry 
a conversation in English, it's easier for me to make a relationship or establish a bond with a parent in English, you know, compared to another English. So taking, it's still possible, but taking that time with the interpreter to kind of explore how I'm going to shed my personality and get some of your family's personality in the conversation. Right. Absolutely. And you talked about how this is um, kind of specific to working in a county hospital. Um, Can you talk about the different sites that you might have considered when uh, figuring out where to practice as an attending and what kind of drove you to practice at the county hospital and then as well as practicing pediatric hospital medicine versus um, subspecialty of pediatrics. Interrupting this episode for another quick word from our sponsor for today. Pixarize, yes, I've used it for step one. I use it during clinics, but did you know that Pixarize also has an amazing MCAT platform? They have videos, everything from biology to um, psych and sociology topics. Those are, we all know, those are straight memorization. Things like personality disorders, Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow's pyramid, different social cognitive theories. Those are all straight memorization. And these cute little videos, similar to the same ones that I'm using for step one, are also available for MCAT. So give it a try if you have a hard time memorizing things. I think it's definitely worth it to try a different way to memorize. So again, if you're interested in trying out either the step one or MCAT platform, you guys can use our code bgwc15 bgwc for brown girl white coat 15 for 15 percent off any of the packages on their website i hope you guys ace your exams and let's get back to the episode um so i think so oftentimes the choice in regards to like where you're practicing is made by your employer so working for Baylor College of Medicine because they are um, responsible for so many sites, some of that is already like dictated in your contract from there. So with Baylor College of Medicine kind of being from that standpoint, uh, academic center, we'll do county time, we'll do then the Texas children branches from there. When you start actually, like if it's not something similar to Baylor College of Medicine, if it's an actual community site, so there might be hospitals that are just servicing in one community from that standpoint, that's when you'd be able to see more um, from there. So I think for me, it was more so, okay, what's the opportunity? Where would I have to work? And do I like all of these? And so over the years, I've seen, oh, okay, well, I like working more at certain settings from that standpoint, um, but still keeping it diverse. I think for me, I like a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And that kind of ties into why I did pediatric hospitalist medicine. When I was a resident, I was basically between neonatology. My last year, so my third year of pediatric residency, I was like, well, maybe just hospitalist because I found myself still liking medicine and kind of liking the little bits of pieces of medicine and wanting to keep a large age group. So with newborns, although I liked neonatology, I liked going to deliveries. um, It's a very specific subset from that standpoint. And so I think, and then in the determination, you also have to consider fellowship from that standpoint kind of like, okay, what's the timing for applications? And for me, the timing had passed. And so it was going to be another year. And I was like, well, do I want, do I love neonatology that much, you know, to Mm -hmm. wait another year, find a a local job and then go back. And so I think those were kind of the aspects I weigh. But because I liked I was like, oh, I like poem. Oh, I like some GI. Um, So I think you're still able to get that variety when you're a hospitalist. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely found that to be true. I, I just recently did my um, pediatric hospital medicine rotation and absolutely loved how just like overarching everything was. It, it kind of fit the entire umbrella of everything that. And sometimes, I mean, Pete, sometimes it is hard because I feel like you have that overarching where when a problem comes in, it's more so you're coordinating, but if it's a new diagnosis and it's something we don't necessarily know what the underlying pathology is, you know, it's, it's harder. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of where that critical thinking comes into. What do you know about like all these different subspecialties and what can we narrow it down to? Absolutely. So I know that pediatrics is very welcoming to female physicians, female residents, unlike, you know, some other like surgical specialties and things like that. But, and I'm sure you faced some struggles when it comes to being a woman of color in pediatrics, um, although it can be pretty accepting. Um, So what are some of those struggles and how did you deal with them? So I would say the struggles from that standpoint could most likely be seen um, in other specialties. I think the biggest one um, that happens overall is just not being taken seriously. Um, so whether it is like you enter a room and you're mistaken for, even though you've introduced yourself as doctor, you're mistaken for the nurse or you're mistaken for ancillary staff. (laughs) Um, when you're just like, I did not say anything of the sort. Um, so kind of, um, that with not only patients, but then people on the floor. Um, I know I was, this was kind of back in residency. I was a senior resident, so about to graduate. And I was with my medical student who was a male um, and we went down to uh, a code in the emergency department. And in our hospital, usually it was just the senior on at night. So there wasn't like an attending in-house. So we come down um, to help with the code and they directly look at my medical student and they're like, hey, are you the resident? And I'm like, no, that's me. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So that, which I think, I think women in general, right? Whenever there's a man in a room, for whatever reason, they're always looked to as the more authoritative figure. So I think those... um, kind of balancing those, especially in a profession where I feel pediatrics, we're friendly, we're nice, we're not going to be aggressive. It's like, oh, never mind, that's okay. Um, But truly finding your voice, like it's okay to be, you know, a little bit um, boisterous, not rude, but just, you know, (laughs) from that standpoint, you know what you're doing. And to tie with that, I think um, for everything, just imposter syndrome, right? So am I good enough? And I think that's on multiple levels as a female and then as a woman of color, um, just because you people are like, okay, do you really know, you know what you're talking about from there? So, or do I? Is there something I don't know? Like, have I made it this far just being under the radar? So I would say that those, those are struggles that I think everyone faces, even like from your pre-med standpoint that I don't think unfortunately are going to go away. <laughs> yeah. And how, how do you deal with that in kind of your ultimate profession? I don't have a family right now, but just from friends, um, from that standpoint, balancing kind of starting a family and also being a doctor, that's also very hard, right? So kind of like, am I dedicated too much to my profession versus my husband and my child? or my significant other. So those are other things that people struggle with. I also know for us, because we are the ones that end up being pregnant, it's going to be like, okay, how long do I take for FMLA? 
or can I take more time for my family as other big struggle? Yeah. And that's definitely something that even in med school, I haven't really heard my male counterparts really um, consider that, you know, they're, they're extremely adamant about going for the most competitive specialties and they really don't consider their home life or they don't consider any of those things. Like, you know, my female friends are constantly worried about. And then just to address the misidentification issue, that is something that I think every single person I've talked to that is a woman in medicine has faced. And it's especially amplified even. So for women of color, the darker you are, <laughs> um, if you're Hispanic or black, that you're, you're mistaken for ancillary staff instead of being mistaken for a nurse. And it's ridiculous. Um, I was just reading a an article the other day about a woman who had an MD badge and it was really large. And one of her medical students kept asking her if she was from Maryland. <laughs> and so <laughs> that story, I was like, we just can't get away from that. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think like it used to really, really bother me when I first started, but I think I've started at least to try to get away from that. And yeah. One, I do so I try to address it in like a non-confrontational way, but I think before I wouldn't address it at all, but I think now it's just more so, okay, I have to address it from that standpoint, just so that they know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then even just on rounds or even just speaking with a bunch of attendings or a bunch of residents, I've noticed that my female counterparts are definitely more on the sheepish side, even if they know the answer to a question, they're more likely to just be quiet about it or let someone else take over. And I, I'm guilty of that as well, just because I'm so scared of saying the wrong thing in the workplace that it, it's just, just yeah, I think, I think it's, it's multiple, there's multiple layers to that, right? Because we're, we're used to being kind of viewed a certain way, we're used to being Put to, whether it's like put together to always have the right response from that standpoint to be more cautious before we speak, you know, and that doesn't necess- that shouldn't necessarily be the prototype or the stereotype that is put on every single woman um, from that standpoint. I, sh- I do think our voices, you know, need to be heard. I do think we need to put ourselves out there a little bit more too. Yeah. Um, So I want to change gears just a little bit. And I want to know, what do you do outside of medicine when you're not practicing? (laughs) Yeah, so kind of, I will say that there is a light at the end of the tunnel a little bit better. (laughs) Um, But you're still balancing your time. But for me, um, I, before the pandemic, of course, I love to travel. Um, So that's something I try to do every year. My goal is to visit, kind of my bucket list is to visit every country on the continent of Africa. (laughs) So we'll see. I'm only at number five. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Quite a ways to go, but that's um, a goal in life. Um, I love Broadway. So I recently, just with the COVID outbreak, watched Hamilton on the Disney And it was amazing. Um, So good. (laughs) I'm so ready to see it kind of. And the thing was, it was coming to Houston. So um, I am kind of bummed that I won't see it. But um, next time, when once Broadway's open back on New York, I'm hoping to pick up something else to watch too as well. I'm into different whiskeys. So I've been learning about the process of making a whiskey and the different types you have and Hopefully we'll be able to go to, you know, Kentucky to see one of these distilleries and then spending time with family. Family's really big to me. 
And I think that's also why I'm here. So, you know, taking my mom out to lunch or spending time with my sisters, things I couldn't do before because I was on the East Coast. Absolutely. That's exciting. I am from Ohio originally. So everybody talks about Kentucky for whiskey. So mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully you get to go. There's not that much to love about Kentucky, but they have the Derby and they have whiskey. The Derby. I was like, yeah, I'm excited for the distilleries. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So another question related to COVID, um, how have you kind of seen COVID-19 affecting families in the hospital right now? Is there anything that um, kind of stood out to you or something that people may not have realized about it? I think from, so an infection control standpoint, right? And in the pediatric hospital, for the most part, pediatric patients come with their parents. And usually we allow both parents or both guardians to be at the bedside. Um, Unfortunately, with the COVID outbreak, that has restricted kind of our visitation policy too as well. So different hospitals across the nation have implemented different rules. So some might have said, okay, only one provider can be at the bedside and it has to be the same provider for the duration of the hospitalization. It's relaxed so that at least at our hospitals, they are allowed to alternate in a 24-hour period so they can switch off every 24 hours. But I still do think that that makes it hard just from a pediatric population, especially if you have a very sick child um, where only one caretaker can be at the bedside. Definitely. Do you actually work at TCH as well? Yes. Okay. And have you noticed any of the um, recent flow of adult patients to TCH and has that affected your practice in any way? I haven't. um, So I've been on the newborn side um, recently. Um, They are kind of introducing the adult service it's going to be attending run only so trying to of course because our our fellows our residents our medical students the intention of the pediatric rotation is to focus on pediatric care so we have uh, we have started that flow that service has started luckily there are criteria because as a practicing pediatrician it's been a while since i've seen an adult patient Um, And then we have our med peds colleagues to help us. Um, So we've had to deal with a lot of changes. That's something that just is constantly going to happen, even outside of school and training. With those changes, we've had an immense support of just kind of staff. Yeah. So our med peds colleagues, other pediatric specialty colleagues are consulted on these adult patients too as well. And then if, if they feel that it's out of their scope, contacting the proper adult specialist too as well. Okay. That's really good to hear. I know a lot of different residents and other colleagues I was talking to were a little bit nervous about like having to treat adult patients and who would actually be required to do that. So it sounds like it's yeah. So I know that that's varied across the nation, right? And especially when you think of places like New York, Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, hopefully that's something that we can keep at bay. Yeah. And I know that medical students are pretty, um, on two different spectrums about this. Half of the friends I've talked to are like, we're medical students. We're paying for this education. We want to not get COVID and we want to be out of the workplace during this time. And then the other side of students I've talked to are like, this is the ultimate medical experience to get involved when there's such a crazy medical event happening like the pandemic. Um, So in your opinion, what is a med student's role during the global pandemic? And how do you think that we should get more involved or get less involved as the cases rise, I guess, in Houston as well? I think this is an unprecedented time from that standpoint, right? Never have we seen globally such 
a pandemic that information's changing. We don't really know kind of what the future holds. I do think as a medical student, it is a responsibility for us to be aware and educated on the virus in itself, right? It's hard because of course, appropriate PPE or kind of contact in regard to those patients. So I think that's kind of where the balance of, okay, well, the re- like residents are responsible and we'll try to shield our medical students, at least for the time being from those patients. Not to say that they shouldn't learn. So we have also implemented other ways, right? So we've started virtual rounding mm-hmm. um, where we can take iPads into the rooms on the, on the patients that not everyone's able to go in. And I think we are going to have to move towards some kind of unconventional and things that we aren't used to are going to become our new norm in regards to learning. Um, I think it has to be done in a safe and kind of trained way. Um, so for my students, like my medical students right now, I do think that, yes, they need to, you know, learn pathophys. They need to learn what we need to be, you know, worried about, but incorporating them in a safe, in a safe way from there, from that. Yeah, that's a good answer. So along with a global pandemic of COVID, there's another pandemic of things that are coming about regarding police violence, um, racial injustice, um, and medical racism has been something that's, you know, people are bringing light to and it's about time. So what do you believe is the medical student's role or the physician's role in this other pandemic that's also going on in the background? Yeah, I must say that this year has been very taxing from just an emotional standpoint, whether, um, like you said, like the health from the COVID um, pandemic to everything else. Um, I I had to actually just turn everything off. So I, I do want to voice that and say that if you do need time to mute, like we are in a generation and kind of a society where news is flooded on our phones news is flooded on our computers news is flooded on our tv at a 24 7 rate so um i do think you have to be mind and kind of guarded of yourself (laughs) and your well-being too as well but once you get that reset i think it is a time it's like okay how can i be instrumental or how can i be productive just in my bubble right Everyone, not everyone can be a civil rights leader like John Lewis, right? We can't all do that. But if we um, can focus on our community, we all have the ability to make an impact. So kind of things that I think are the biggest things, especially as a medical student, as a healthcare provider is empathy. I think we are very quick as a nation to hear someone's opinion and disregard it or say, well, this is the facts I have to refute that. And sometimes it isn't about that. Sometimes it's just about understanding the other person's perspective. I have not walked in your shoes, so therefore I don't know how life has been for you. Um, And so therefore kind of trying to understand that. And I think that that can be used in our patients as well. When we are examining our patients, there's been studies out about how we treat patients differently, kind of from a pain standpoint, depending Mm -hmm. on the race of a patient, Um, how we address the concerns of a family, you know, depending on the race of the parents too as well. Um, So just being in tune to your own kind of biases Um, I think as a provider and how you can kind of avoid that 
impact as well. Um, I think healthcare system in itself too, just yet yeah, from um, kind of a social standpoint and kind of injustice standpoint has a lot of things to do, like especially within the African-American community who have been afraid, you know, to seek medical care or are worried kind of just from a standpoint that their concerns aren't being addressed. Um, so making sure that we are kind of trying to address and truly examine ourselves from that standpoint as well. I think we all have a voice, whether you want to use that voice or not, it's up to you. Um, but understand that you can, it doesn't have to be on a large grand scale, right? It could just be in your own community. Um, and if you see something that's wrong, speak up. I think a lot of times people don't speak up because they're like, oh, well, I knew it was wrong, but I was, you know, I was scared. But, it, you know, if one person does it, then someone else kind of feels or has the courage to also speak up to as well. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love that you said, you know, to start small and start in your own community, your own bubble. Uh, because I think at least for me and people my age right now, our eyes are kind of being open to all this and mm -hmm. we are, we want to make the biggest difference right away and we want to change the world. And sometimes it just takes a small step in the right direction to get to that place and not get yourself burnt out <laughs> when you're pursuing social justice. So yeah, I really I like that. I, I think, yeah, I think as much as your health too is important. Yeah. Um, so sometimes, yeah, sometimes it just, it has to take and has to be of balance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I always like to ask this as the last question of any podcast episode, um, because a lot of my listeners are pre-med students and medical students as well. So what advice do you have for pre-med students that might be interested in medicine or interested in pediatrics as well? Just some last words that you might have of advice for them. I think the biggest thing from that standpoint, um, and it's hard for me to say this now, right? Because I'm on the other side. Um, but I think what I wish if I could go back to kind of just my pre-med standpoint is enjoy the process more. There's always, there's always going to be the next step or there's always going to be something to do. So make sure that you're truly exploring these avenues, like exploring kind of the roles in healthcare and if it, and even other things outside of healthcare. Like I was involved in the arts. Um, I can't act, but I found myself by just loving that creative side and having the ability to do costume or set design. And so as a pre-med student, I think you should truly take the time to explore all of your interests because ultimately you are going to get to medicine and medicine's a very taxing kind of profession. Um, you give yourself wholeheartedly. So make sure that it is truly something that you want to do and don't be afraid to try something new. Like if you think you want to be a pediatrician, but then fall in love with ophthalmology, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Explore. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Olabi, for being on my show today. I think we addressed all of the important things. Yes, it was fun. It was great. Um, I hope everyone was able to take something away. <laughs> yeah. And take care. All right. Thank you. All right, guys, that is the episode for this week. I would love to interact with you and know what you thought of this week's episode. Feel free to DM us at browngirlwhitecoatpod on Instagram or myself at Saibear, S-A-I-E-B-E-A-R on Instagram as well. And as always, we love and appreciate if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well as follow on Spotify. And I just wanted to quickly say hi to all of the listeners that are coming and listening to us from India. I just checked our 
Spotify podcast wrapped edition and we grew a lot in India this year so hello to all of my Indian listeners thank you so much for following along we love you guys as well as France I think love you guys so much thank you so much for following along and thanks for making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are